Evidence-based medicine has changed resuscitation in the field and in the ED. How well do you know the new tools of the trade? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 157. I'm your host, Dr. Shira Johnson, and joining us today to discuss what is new in EMS is Dr. Chris Colwell from Denver Health Medical Center. Dr. Colwell is an Associate Director in the Department of Emergency Medicine, and he is Medical Director of the Denver Paramedic and Fire Departments. Dr. Colwell, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. So in all the years that you've been teaching and practicing pre-hospital care, tell us some of the ways that it's changed. Well, I think pre-hospital care and emergency care has changed dramatically in the last 10 or 15 years. And I think in particularly if we talk about EMS and we focus on pre-hospital issues, what we've done that I think is very exciting is that we've started to challenge the mantra that we have always lived by. So if you talk to EMS providers and medical directors 20 years ago, there were certain things that they said, this is the core of EMS. This is the core of what we do. And really always, but particularly recently, we've challenged some of that mantra, some of the things that we're doing. Does it make sense? Under what circumstances? And I think that's made for some exciting updates and changes. What's one of the biggest advances or changes that we've seen in the the way we administer CPR? Well, CPR has gotten quite a bit of attention, particularly in the last several years. And I think what we've started to learn is that way back when, when we emphasized CPR, we were probably right to do that. And as we de-emphasized CPR as we moved along, maybe that was the wrong direction to go. The more recent articles have really emphasized good CPR and good early CPR Maybe the most important thing in terms of survival for patients that have undergone cardiac arrest. We sometimes get too bogged down with four and five and six hour training courses for CPR. It doesn't need to be that difficult. Fast, 100 compressions a minute, do it first, do it often. If we're doing it well, we may have more impact on saving lives than essentially anything else we do other than perhaps electricity. With the changes in CPR, and I guess I'm referring to we're doing more compressions and less ventilation, have we, in terms of numbers, or have you personally, either one, seen a resultant change in survival and outcome? Both. I think the most impressive data is what's been published in this area, and it started with a Norway study back in 2003. Actually, some Seattle studies that looked at this earlier than that, but it really generated some excitement in 2003 when they found that doing CPR first, even before we looked at what rhythm the patient was in and before we considered electricity in the unwitnessed cardiac arrest, so when it wasn't witnessed by pre-hospital providers, it really resulted in increased survival. And studies that have come out recently since then have re-emphasized that issue. And when you've instituted a two-minute of CPR before doing anything else in the unwitnessed cardiac arrest, we are saving lives. And this is resulting in having more patients walk out of the hospital neurologically intact than when we're not doing that. Because the numbers of unwitnessed cardiac arrest were dismal. I mean, they were zero or in the negatives. They've been bad, and it's not like we have been able to turn that around and now that they look good, but they certainly are looking much better when we are paying attention to details such as when we do CPR and how well we do it. We're still not doing it well consistently enough. What about the role of hypothermia after a cardiac arrest? So this has been an interesting development really over the last several years. There was two articles published in New England Journal of Medicine in 2002 that looked at therapeutic hypothermia in specific cases of patients who were found to be in cardiac arrest, resuscitated from that, and had return of spontaneous circulation, but did not return their neurologic recovery. In other words, they remained comatose even though they had spontaneous circulation. And in those groups of patients, particularly if they had an initial witnessed ventricular fibrillation, they seem to do better and survive in higher numbers when therapeutic hypothermia was instituted. So 
a lot of institutions, either in the ED or certainly in the ICU, have instituted this idea and are doing this. The question is whether or not EMS should be doing it, and I think the answer to that is we probably should, not because it needs to be done immediately. Both those studies and studies since have suggested that if it's instituted within an hour, maybe 105 minutes is what the one study looked at, and certainly by six hours have the patients cooled, then you may get your impact. So doing it in the pre-hospital setting when you only have 10-minute response times isn't necessarily where we're going to make our difference. But I'm a firm believer that if we are able to institute something like this in the field, it sends a message, A, that we've identified this patient as a potential candidate for this, and B, once it's started, it's very easy for, or much easier, I should say, for hospitals to continue, uh, to continue that process. And I think that's what's exciting about pre-hospital potentially doing this, and they are doing that in some areas of the country. What's new in, in airway management that maybe our listeners don't already know? Well, there's a lot of interest focused on airway management and a lot of debate as to whether airways should be managed in the field and if so, under what circumstances and should we be using medications to assist in this, rapid sequence intubation, those types of things. And there's debates in virtually every one of those areas. What I think we are really progressing in is alternatives to airway management. First of all, we're learning that good bag valve mask skills are important. And secondly, we have some more tools at our disposal now. So things like CPAP is much more universally used now in the field than it ever has been. BiPAP is still probably a little too expensive, and I haven't seen that a whole lot, but I have seen lots of areas where CPAP has been introduced, and it has resulted, and we have some studies now that are showing that it it results in fewer intubations in the field and better outcomes. We also have other alternatives in terms of rescue airway devices, so things like the combi tube, like the LMA, like what we're using in Denver, which is the King Airway, can be very effective in terms of ventilating patients, and although it's not a definitive airway, It may accomplish everything that we need to accomplish in the field, and having these other alternatives should be considered and should be often, in many cases, incorporated into pre-hospital practices. Not as necessarily the only thing, but certainly as an option. And that's a big change. CPAP used to be a last resort while you were waiting on anesthesia in the ER on the floor, and now you're suggesting it should be a first resort and should even be taken into the field. I think absolutely. In fact, we're doing it in the field now in Denver and have had wonderful results. It's not on all respiratory patients, obviously. It's on reactive airways disease, COPD, asthma, CHF patients, those types of things. But we've had success similar to what the published articles have shown in terms of fewer intubations and better outcomes. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Shira Johnson, and joining me today is Dr. Chris Colwell from Denver Health Medical Center, who is also the medical director for the Denver EMS system. Let's talk about drugs. Have we expanded the toolbox of meds used by our paramedics in the field? What drugs have had some newfound success? We have expanded the toolbox fairly significantly, sometimes with very good results, sometimes with perhaps not as good a result as we had hoped for or expected. And we've done it in many areas as well. Things like emesis, treatment for nausea and vomiting in the field, whereas for a long time we either didn't use anything or when we did use it, it had some really significant downsides of sedation, dystonic reactions, those types of things. We're now seeing studies that, in particular on Dancitron, since it has become generic and is now much less expensive, has very few side effects such as sedation or dystonic reactions. It's not expensive. Some people have argued how effective is it My personal anecdotal experience is that it has been very effective. I know some of the studies haven't been overwhelming, but they certainly have found it to be reasonable. And I think it is a nice new option 
in that, in particular, it doesn't have the side effects that we've traditionally seen with antiemetics. And you have it available to your paramedics in the field? We do. We're using ondansetron in the field in, in Denver, and I know a lot of places across the country that are using it as well. Adenosine. It's always been one of my favorite drugs. Can you tell our listeners who may not know this how it's used in the field, if it's used in the field, its role in the ER? It is used in the field, and it's gotten some interesting attention of late. In particular, there have been some questions as to how accurately we're using it in the field and how there are times when perhaps we shouldn't be using it that we have been. And I think, more importantly, we do have it in Denver. I know a lot of systems that do have it, and I think it is appropriate to have it in the pre-hospital setting. But I think what the articles are doing is a very good thing in terms of they're reminding us that there are some downsides to adenosine. It's not a completely infallible drug. It's not something that can be used with impunity all the time. And it's something we really need to be thinking and critically evaluating how we are using it, under what circumstances, how certain are we that we have a good identifiable rhythm that we are treating, and what situations is it particularly effective and what has it not been a good idea to use that in the field. And I think we need to question that about everything we do. Not so much can we, because a lot of our literature has focused on can this be done in the field. I believe just about anything can be done in the field. The next question to me is more important, should we? And I think there are some times when adenosine is appropriate to use in the field, but there are also some times when it's not, and we need to be careful about differentiating that. Do you advise with medical control, say, have your paramedics a rapid rhythm, undiagnosed, what it is, give adenosine to see if it'll work, to see if there's flutter waves? Do you use it diagnostically in the field, or you try to stress that they use it to treat? No, I think it really is more appropriately used, in my opinion, for treatment. For diagnosis, that's something that can be done often more effectively in the emergency department, not because we're going to do something differently, but we can often have a a situation where we can more clearly document exactly what the underlying rhythm is. And I'm not sure how often we do it just purely diagnostically anyway, but I think in the field... I'm not sure there's a real indication to do it just to kind of see what happens. I think we need to be very clear as to what rhythm we're treating and why we're using adenosine. So they call it in and they have to get permission to use adenosine or your guys go ahead and use it? They don't. They do have the flexibility to use it as a standing order, although we do review all those calls. And I've got to say, our experience is very similar to some of the published literature that has suggested that in up to 20% of the cases, it's not necessarily being used in the right setting. What about magnesium? What are some of the ways that's used pre-hospital? Well, it's been used in a number of different ways, and we in medicine, I would say this is emergency medicine and pre-hospital, have searched for the right use for magnesium for so long. I think we're all anxious to find a niche for magnesium because it's inexpensive, it's easy to give, it doesn't have very many side effects. We've searched so hard for a reason for magnesium, and I'm not sure we have found a good indication just yet. We use it in reactive airways disease, although there's not a whole lot of data behind that. We've used it in strokes, and we know we can use it effectively, but we're not sowing any real benefit from it in that, at least not yet. We use it in eclampsia, and that probably is a reasonable use for that rare eclamptic patient that we have, although in Europe, they question that data as well. So we're still searching for the real indication for magnesium. What about the intraosseous route? Started out just for peds, and where are we with that today? I think this is a real exciting advancement in pre-hospital medicine because we're using now in a lot of different systems, including Denver, a bone gun essentially for interosseous access in both peds and adult. It's much better than the old systems that we've used for interosseous access. I think it's far better than trying three, four, five, ten times for IV access when you just can't get it in a patient who's really sick. I'm not sure we should be using it in the awake alert patients that could use IV access, but don't necessarily have it. I think it should be reserved for the situations where we really need it. But it's a wonderful opportunity now for 
access in patients that we didn't have very good access before, both in the pre-hospital and in the emergency department. Last question. So physicians are listening to us today, and they want to follow up on some of the topics that we just touched on. Where can we tell them to get more information? If anybody has anything that they would like comments on that I can help with, I can either give them some of the answers that I have found or direct them to places or people that can. My email is ccolwell, so C-C-O-L-W-E-L-L, at dhha.org. So that stands for Denver Health and Hospital Association.org. So ccolwell at dhha.org, and I'd be more than happy to help either find some of the things that people are looking for, direct them to the literature that I have found helpful in trying to come up with some of these answers, or direct them to people that can come up with some of these answers for them. We want to thank you very much for being on the show today. Thank you very much for having me. We've had Dr. Chris Caldwell today joining us to discuss new trends in EMS management and what you don't know could hurt you. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. For a complete program guide and podcasts, visit ReachMD.com. For comments or questions, call us toll-free at 888-MD-XM-157. And thank you, as always, for listening.